0: I love the way Harold referenced Scripture as the means by which God communicates His love towards us. Certainly He does so in the incarnate Word, our Lord Jesus, Um, but in Scripture He speaks His truth to us in love, and this evening I invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Genesis chapter 32. We'll be looking at verses 22 through 32. Before we read the text, uh, just uh, a few words by way of context. The book of Genesis was written by Moses. It could have been written as early as his call at Midian soon after Exodus chapter 3 or as late as his farewell to God's people in Deuteronomy chapter 34. Or of course, somewhere in between, which means Moses is either writing to the first generation of Israelites or the second generation of Israelites who are at the plains of Moab and about to go into the promised land to take the land. And Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reaches back in Israel's history, and he picks true stories, historical events, and presents them as stories, reaching back into Israel's past to tell a story in order to make a point in their present. And the entire book of Genesis could be summed up, and this is where I footnote my wonderful professor, Richard Pratt, Old Testament scholar, convincingly makes the case that if you could sum up the book of Genesis into a sentence, the message is leaving Egypt and possessing Canaan is God's purpose for Israel. And, of course, that has implications for us as New Testament Christians. Escaping this world, stepping out of the darkness and into the light, and pursuing the land of the living, the new heavens and the new earth, is God's purpose for the church. So that's the book of Genesis in general, but now chapter 32 in particular, the chapter in which our text is found. It begins with a pressing need. Jacob is going home to the promised land, but he's facing an obstacle because he's at odds with his brother Esau. Geographically, he could sneak his way into the promised land, but spiritually, he cannot avoid his brother. Because to make progress with God, he must make peace with his brother Esau. So, the chapter begins with a pressing need. It continues with timely help. The angels of God camp. And Jacob exclaims with joy, this is the camp of God. And it gives great assurance to him. Because now he knows that his camp has the support of God's camp of angels. And the chapter continues to unfold with a severe test. Jacob sends messengers to Esau. He says, I am sending this message to you, my Lord, my brother, that I may find favor in your eyes. But then the messengers return from Esau and they tell Jacob, Your brother is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Now, what would you be thinking? Here I am trying to do the right thing, and now I'm going to get massacred. What would you be doing? Would you choose to run away, or would you choose to press forward? Jacob does what he can do to get himself ready. He puts forward together a strategic defense. He divides his people and his possessions into two groups, and he sends them ahead of himself, and then he bows in prayer earnestly, save me. Lord, I pray from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will attack my family, but you have said to me that you will make me prosper and make my descendants like the sand of the sea. And then he puts together a lavish present, a whole ranch of some 550 animals Divided into five herds and spaced apart and sent forward waves of generosity to seek the favor of his brother Esau. That's what Jacob does to get himself ready, but there's more. What will God do to get Jacob ready? And that's where we pick up the text in verse 22 32, the same night he, Jacob, arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, the river. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him, So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is God's Word. Let me pray for us. Father, You have told us that the unfolding of Your words gives light, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work by and with your word to open the ears and eyes of our hearts that we might see Jesus. And that in seeing him, we might love him and trust him and follow him. Make us ready to live for him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a story. Five steps then unfold in dramatic fashion. It's what theologians call the classic five-step narrative of resolution. And I want to follow it step by step. As we consider the question, how are we made ready by God's grace? The first step, there's a problem. Verses 22 and 23 begins with isolation. But step two, the action begins to rise. You begin to feel the tension. This is a drama unfolding. And in verse 24 and 25, we see the confrontation. But then things turn. It's the very center of the story. The narrative slows down. The camera zooms close. And we find this turning point of transformation, verses 26 through 29. And having made the pivot, the action begins to fall. The tension is released, and there's commemoration, verse 30. But then finally, the problem that was introduced at the beginning is resolved in verse 31, the resolution, the onward progression This is how God makes us ready by His grace. Consider with me, first of all, step one, the problem of isolation. Verses 22 and 23, the same night, Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had had and Jacob was left alone. Fear does all kinds of things in a person. One of the things that it does is it drives a man to action. It's a very aggressive start to the story. He arose. He's rising from a prostrate, face-down position of prayer. He gets up, and then he took, and then he sent his servants and his family, and they crossed the river. But fear not only tends to put a man to action, it also drives a man to find privacy, to collect his thoughts. Jacob was left alone. Can you feel that? The original readers, the Israelites reading this generations later, would recognize that Jacob anticipates their experience. As Jacob lived in exile, so the sons of Israel lived in exile. As Jacob was exploited in captivity to Laban, remember Uncle Laban? So the sons of Israel were exploited as slaves in Egypt. As Jacob escaped from Laban and plundered his estate, so the sons of Israel escaped from Egypt and plundered their wealth. And so, Jacob's dilemma would speak very powerfully as they contemplated their situation, likely on the plains of Moab, called to cross into the land of promise, but afraid. It should also anticipate your experience, too, as a New Testament Christian. Like Jacob, and Israel, we the church, journey toward our promised inheritance. But the path can be so hard. Maybe it's confronting someone and you just do not want to have the conversation. Or maybe it's making restitution so hard. And you are tempted to shrink back. Or kids, maybe it's doing the very unpopular thing. Your friends are going this way, and you know in your heart God is calling you to go this way. And it feels very lonely, doesn't it? We're afraid. It's as though we're in the dark, all by ourselves. That's the problem of isolation. But the story continues with step number two, and the the action begins to rise in verses 24 and 25 with confrontation. The plot thickens. The solitude is shattered. Jacob is jolted into a living nightmare. Notice what the text says, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. It's a surprise assault from an unidentified man. And here's the irony. Jacob feared the confrontation that was to come on that side of the river. But here it is on this side of the river, completely by surprise. And Moses skillfully has a play on words in the verb that he chooses for wrestle. The verb translated wrestle in Hebrew actually sounds like the word Jacob. And so the unidentified man, as it were, Jacobed Jacob until daybreak. And Jacob was a strong man, but has he met his match? He's grasping, he's straining, he's tumbling, he's wrestling until dawn. To wrestle in the ancient Near East was one way to settle a legal case, a wrestling match, a trial by combat. Jacob is on trial, but why? What issue needs to be settled? All of his life has been a struggle. All of his life has been a wrestling match with his brother Esau, with his uncle Laban. But all of his life has been a deeper struggle, a wrestling match not horizontally with his neighbor, but a wrestling match vertically with the true and living God. That's the deeper wrestling. Who will reign over Jacob? Will it be Jacob or will it be God? How does blessing come to Jacob? Will it be by Jacob's crafty work or will it be by God's free grace? How will Jacob prevail in life? How will he be fruitful? Will it be by Jacob's power, or will it be by God's power? Those are the questions. And those are the sort of questions that reading this text, the Israelites ought to be asking themselves, because they're facing the same trial, and they're called upon to wrestle with the same sort of questions. Who will rule over my heart? From whom does my victory come? For whom do I live? How do I navigate life? And of course, you see, New Testament Christian, how these are the very same questions that God, speaking His truth in love, poses to me and to you, because we're all on trial. Who will rule over us? Will I take the wheel and direct my own life, or will I in humility submit to the true and living God? Will Christ be my master, or will I trade Jesus for something else? This is the trial by combat. These are the questions that the text poses. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. I was a biology major. Did some work with the knives in the lab. Never the sciatic nerve, but my textbook told me that the sciatic nerve is that principal nerve near the hip, and this man's touch right there was paralyzing. And so, Jacob crumbles, and now he's clinging, and the hip represented two important ideas. On the one hand, it signified a man's foundation of life, and on the other hand, it signified the source of a person's descendants. It was sort of a euphemistic way of referring to a man's organs of procreation as the source of a man's descendants. And so, Israelites reading and hearing this story, the wound would strike a very deep chord. The blow to Jacob's hip pointed to the blow to Jacob's descendants. They knew themselves to be a broken people. After all, they were in bondage in Egypt. And after all, now they're struggling as they journey in the very harsh wilderness. They understand themselves to be a dislocated people. And so the text speaks to their experience. But it also speaks to yours and mine as a Christian. The blow to Jacob's hip points beyond Jacob's immediate descendants to his great descendant, our Lord Jesus. And in the gospel, we learn that Jesus would bear the stroke of God's judgment in order that we might receive God's blessing. You see, if there were a legal case to be settled, it was the vindication of God's justice because He has been sinned against, and yet the vindication of God's love because He is seeking and finding a way to save sinners whom He loves. As the suffering servant, Jesus receives the death blow that you and I deserve. And as the exalted Lord, Jesus comes to confront our self-strength so that we might redirect our trust to His strength. I don't know about you, but I suspect that if you're like me, you would not choose this fight. We would rather not die to self. We would rather live for ourselves, apart from grace. But God moves towards us in love, and He comes to confront us in order that He might rescue us. The story begins with isolation. It builds with confrontation. But then the third step is the dramatic turning point, the transformation, in verses twenty-six through twenty nine. Again, literarily, the pace slows down, the camera zooms close, and the shift from the writer's descriptions to the character's dialogue signifies Moses' chief concern. He's focusing us to the middle because that's where the game changer is, the turning point. Dawn begins to break slowly. The silhouette of Jacob's opponent begins to emerge. Jacob begins to realize that his opponent is none other than the angel of the Lord, what theologians call a theophany a physical manifestation, the angel of the Lord. And so Jacob clings fast to him. But wait a minute. Jacob is in grave danger because, as God said to Moses, Exodus chapter 33, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And so the angel says to Jacob, verse 26, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Edmund Clowney, wonderful scholar, pastor, former president of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, writes, The match was over. Jacob was lamed. Yet for Jacob, the fight could not be over. Lame as he was, blinded by his tears, he clung the more fiercely to his awesome adversary. If he could not win by his strength, he would prevail in his weakness. And so, the angel of the Lord says to Jacob, What is your name? And I want you to pause for a moment and I want you to consider God is the all knowing one, so why would he ask this question? Do you recall the last time Jacob was asked this very same question? Exodus 27. His aged. Blind father Isaac says to him, Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Are you really my son Esau? And Jacob answered, I am. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. May God give you of the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, the plenty of the grain and the wine. Let people serve you and the nations bow down to you. Blessing. Ah, but the blessing was gotten through deception. And the Lord knows it. And Jacob knows it. And so the angel of the Lord puts the same question to Jacob again. What is your name? Jacob. It's the shortest word in the text. One simple word, but one honest, humble confession. I and the cheater of my brother. That's who I am. I am the deceiver of my father. That's who I am. I am the schemer in search of God's blessing. I'm guilty. But into the guilt, God speaks a word of grace, as He always does. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Once again, Dr. Clowney, so helpful. The Lord declares Jacob the winner. He changes his name. But what a strange victory. Jacob wins not by pinning his opponent to the mat, but by holding fast to God in weakness. In the Bible, names are very significant, and when your name changes in midlife, that's very significant. It's a game changer. Israel literally means God prevails. God fights for His people. But God reframes the name by saying, you Have wrestled with God and with men, and you have prevailed by my grace through your faith. You see, the old name recalls Jacob's self trusting past, but the new name, Israel, highlights this God trusting moment. It foretells a new character, a new identity. It foretells sure success across the river with his brother Esau. It's a transformation from trusting in himself to trusting in his God. And that's always the principle in Scripture. Salvation, sanctification, growth in holiness, Christ-likeness is always, by God's grace, through our faith, two sides of the relationship in a covenant, by His grace and through our faith. It's a relationship. So Jacob asks him, please tell me your name. Not in shame this time as he confessed his name Jacob, but in wonder and the angel of the Lord says, why is it that you ask my name? It's sort of an indirect refusal, isn't it? As if to say, you know who I am. And there he blessed him. The promise of his presence to be with him all of his days, because only his presence could make him fruitful. Well, you're reading this as an Israelite on the plains of Moab. And this text is speaking to you. Moses presents Jacob as a role model. When crippled by God, Israel must not despise God, but cling to God by faith. The name Jacob reminds his descendants that they have good reason for humility. They are the descendants of a deceiver, but they have better reasons for confidence because the name Israel reminds His descendants that God fights for His people and will prevail. And it's the same good news that God speaks to us as Christians in Christ. This story anticipates our Lord Jesus. In His death on Friday, Jesus identifies with you and me as Jacob in response to our faithlessness, and on Friday he receives God's curse. But in his resurrection on Sunday, Jesus is identified as the true Israelite. In response to his faithfulness, he receives God's blessing. And as we come to Him and believe on Him, the gospel tells us that we are baptized into this name. We are made true Israelites, united to our true Israelite, our Lord Jesus, by God's grace, through our faith in Jesus. Do you feel the transformation? Isolation confrontation, transformation. Step four, the tension is released. The action falls. Verse 30, commemoration. The angel of the Lord has disappeared, but Jacob commemorates his presence. Verse 30, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Peniel, the word means the face of God. And it's an expression of faith. As he says, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life was delivered. Here, God has answered my prayer for salvation. Earlier in the chapter, in verse 11, Jacob was praying, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother Esau. And now here, if he has survived this meeting with God, then you can bet he will survive that meeting with Esau. And Israel on the plains of Moab, reading of their great patriarch. The text speaks remember, remember because we're prone to spiritual amnesia we forget what god does for us so remember as jacob marked the spot where he received god's grace so israel must move into the land of promise and mark god's faithfulness as jacob expressed faith in god's future grace so must israel believe that god will win their battles as they move into the land and it's the same significant for us. In our New Testament journey, the Lord's appearing to Jacob foreshadows His appearing to us. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 writes, "'For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ.'" God reveals Himself in the face of Christ, and we live. As Jacob marked the spot where he received grace, we are called to look for ways to to remember where God revealed His grace to us. And as Jacob expressed faith in God's future grace, so we too, this week, whatever is in front of you, are called to trust in God's future grace to win the battle in front of you as early as tomorrow. Isolation, confrontation, transformation, commemoration, finally, Step five, there's resolution. There's onward progression. Verse 31. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. And what a sight! Let your holy spiritual imagination picture the scene, the contrast. The story began in the thick of night. It concludes with a glorious sunrise. The story began with Jacob staying back. The story concludes with Jacob crossing over. The story began with Jacob as a deceiver, tripped up and trapped in his sin. The story concludes with Jacob as the prevailer by God's grace. The story began with Jacob Seemingly sturdy in his own strength, but the story concludes with Jacob broken of his self-strength, but blessed, limping in weakness, but beaming with confidence. And so, the Israelites on the plains of Moab watched their patriarch cross over the Jordan into land to possess it, and that's what God is calling them to do, and to cross over in the same sort of weakness and humility because they will not conquer Canaan in man's strength but only in the Lord's strength, and it's true for us as well as a New Testament Christian. Jesus, our pathfinder, has blazed the trail through the jungle from death into life, and he says to you tonight, follow me. I've roped you in to my journey. Follow me. Pursue your inheritance by following in these steps, but pursue your inheritance and in humility because God will not allow you to possess your inheritance and your own strength. Now, he'll break that down in order that you might lay hold of Him and might give you the victory as you walk in His strength. My grace is sufficient for you, says Jesus to Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. And this great story ends with an editorial note, a comment to explain why do we not why do we not eat the sinew of the thigh? Here's why. And of course, when we gather around the Lord's table, a passage like this reminds us this is why we do what we do. This is why we come to the table, because of who Christ is and what Christ does. So there you have it. This is how God makes us ready by his grace isolation, confrontation, transformation, commemoration, onward progression. It's an awesome story, a momentous game changer. He could proceed no further toward the promised land. And so God had to oppose him, fight him, break him in order that he might bless him. And in exchange for Jacob's humble confession, God gives him a crown. And as Christians, we too pilgrim toward Bethel, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth. But we must wrestle on the way. And Christ will oppose us in order to change us. And at the end of our long road, having fought the good fight, having finished the course, having kept the faith, Jesus will welcome us with our crown. We will hear what Nathanael heard in the Gospel of John chapter 1 when Jesus saw him. And said to him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Until that day, are we willing to follow, to wrestle, to abandon all that would sustain us and hold fast to God alone? Are we willing to walk the painful path that leads to blessing? If so, once again, we can kneel humbly with the psalmist and say with thanksgiving, Psalm 24, who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord. And righteousness from the God of his salvation. This, this, this is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Let me pray for us.
1: Hmm.
0: Lord Jesus, our lead climber, our pathfinder, our trailblazer, we thank you that you did all of this not as a private individual, but as our representative, because the Father has established a bond between you and your people and that we are, as it were, roped up to you, and you are bringing many sons and daughters to glory. We pray that you would make us ready, that you would help us, that you would grow us. And the things that we are learning, we pray that we would not be stingy, but we would We would share the wealth. This is what God is teaching me from His Word. That we would encourage one another, that the Word of Christ would dwell in us richly and that we might overflow with wisdom, with words that build up and do not tear down. That we would help each other along the way as we see the day approaching near. That we would not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, but we would be softened by Your Spirit as you use words like these to change us. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word that Christ speaks. So would you, Lord Jesus, take this word preached, and as we heard this morning, let it go down deep as a word implanted, able to save and to sanctify our soul. Help us to not shrink back, but to press forward, and live by faith in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and let's conclude our worship singing together by faith. Please stand. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, may He equip you with everything good for doing His will, working in us what is pleasing in His sight through Jesus, to whom belongs glory forever and ever. Amen. The glory potter.